Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Uh, Last Sunday, I took time to repristinate our values and our priorities. And one of the things that I said Gateway was about was seeking to build and create resilient disciples at all levels, at all ages. And one of the things I mentioned that produces resilience, a key component in the whole building of resilience into people's lives, is that we be a people animated by the scriptures. So the series that I'm about to begin with you is a series that really has to do with reading the scriptures. Now, it won't, it won't appear like that to you for a start, but as we get underway, you'll see where I'm heading and the kind of the undergirding theme of what I'm seeking to, to, um, to develop. I want you to read the scriptures, all of the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, okay? Okay, this series was born out of a response to a reaction I had, actually, of reading a Christian pastor's um, book. This is a well-known pastor, a well-known Christian leader. His name is Andy Stanley, and I'm sure some of you have heard of him. Some of you possibly follow him on podcasts. He's quite a brilliant communicator. He is the son of Charles Stanley. If you watch Christian TV, then you might have seen his dad preaching. Um, Andy is the senior pastor of America's second largest church, apparently, North Point Community Church, located in Atlanta, Georgia. Very gifted leader, very gifted communicator, well-respected in evangelical circles, particularly in America, but across the world. The book that I read uh, is called Irresistible, and it's subtitled Reclaiming the New that Jesus Unleashed for the World. Now, I really comment on the books that I read. I read a lot, and uh, I don't usually comment. At at least sometimes I might throw something, oh, that's a book worth reading, but rarely do I take time in a sermon to actually address a book. I think I've done it a couple of times over the years. I talked about Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, and I talked about Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. Both of those books, of course, were best-selling books by non-Christian authors who, in one case, very directly, and in another case, indirectly were attempting to debunk Christianity and the Bible. Obviously, Andy Stanley's book is very different from the, these two. It's written, prim, it's written firstly by a Christian communicator who has a great desire to reach his generation for Christ. His major burden in and through the book is to reframe Christian apologetics for a new generation. Stanley notes that nearly everybody that he knows who have deconverted uh, and abandoned the Christian faith have done so because they basically at some point in time lost faith in the Bible. And he goes on to note that nine out of ten of those stumbled over what the Old Testament taught. Bad church experiences, he observes, are more often than not related to Old Testament practices and teachings that have been imposed on people. And Stanley believes that we have shot ourselves in the foot by leaning too much on Old Testament teachings. Most of what makes the church objectionable to postmodern people, things like slavery, the mistreatment of women, anti-gay rhetoric, and so on, he says is derived primarily from the Old Testament. And he has a radical answer to this problem. And the answer is, throw the Old Testament out, jettison it, get rid of it altogether. Let me quote from Irresistible. I hope you will unhitch your faith, your theology, your lifestyle once and for all from the Old Testament. 
And he says that if we do that, our apologetic task becomes so much easier. He says when skeptics point out the violence, the misogyny, and the scientific and historically unverifiable claims of the Hebrew Bible, instead of trying to defend these things, we can shrug, give them our best confused look and say, I'm not sure why you're bringing that up. My Christian faith is not based on any of that. Now, he has a point up to a point. I think we can all agree that many Christians have been and actually continue to be very confused about the interplay between the Old and New Covenants and the Old and New Scriptures. Some have read and interpreted the Old Testament incorrectly and have done great damage to people's understanding of Christianity. As Stanley points out, slave owners incorrectly used Old Testament passages to justify their practices. Patriarchal societies did exactly the same in their mistreatment of women. They appealed to Old Testament scriptures. Stanley observes that Christians have tried to make the book of Genesis a scientific textbook rather than a poetic record of God's creation of the universe and as a result have caused great embarrassment to the Christian cause by virtue of some of the things that they insist on. He says some groups have slavishly followed Old Testament food laws, ceremonies, special days, and even dress codes, and as a result are completely out of touch with postmodern culture. So what Stanley's saying is that the Bible is a, a, a book that is organized around two dip, very different covenants. One is between God and ancient Israel, and the other is between you and, and me and God. He says, for Christians, we should concentrate on the second one and let the first one go. It's obsolete. He says, if you want to, you can read it for historical content and inspiration, but definitely don't try that stuff at home. Christianity, he says, can stand on its own new covenant first century feet. The Christian faith doesn't need to be propped up by the Jewish scriptures. In a post-Christian context, our faith actually does better without old covenant support. Now, clearly, Stanley is right in his assertion that many of the Mosaic Covenant, many aspects of the Mosaic Covenant, have been abrogated, have been done away with by the New Covenant. For example, the temple, the animal sacrifices, the ancient priesthood, Sabbath-keeping, food laws, circumcision, and so on. Stanley says they've been done away with, they were fulfilled in Christ, and they are no longer applicable to the New Testament believer. And we can all say an amen to that. However, I would want to say that I think Sanley is mistaken in treating the Old Testament laws as an undifferentiated lump, so that if one goes, it all goes. And that gets pretty radical. For example, he says of the Ten Commandments, what good are the Ten Commandments, he asks, and then answers, not a lot. They have no authority over you, none. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. We have one commandment, love God and others. I think that's two, but never mind. Now, without going into detail here, I believe that is incredibly simplistic and it doesn't actually reflect what Jesus said about the Old Testament and about the law. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not one dot or one mark will pass away from the law until it all be fulfilled. Now you've got to grapple with that if you're going to buy into irresistible and Stanley's approach to the Old Testament. He stokes a radical discontinuity between Old Testament and New Testament. He says, 
is from the Old Testament, we, we seem to derive the idea of hating your enemies, while the New Testament is about loving them. The Old Testament, God is holy. The New Testament, God is love. In the Old Testament, God is angry. In the New Testament, he's brokenhearted. The Old Testament on the whole, says Stanley, is harsh, cold, legalistic, and it needs to be left behind. So for him, the two covenants are basically incompatible. And the book goes on to be even more radical in claiming every ancient pagan god was a human rights violator, he says. That was standard. The God of the Old Testament played by the rules of the day. That's jaw-dropping. Yahweh, a human rights violator? That's a jaw-dropping claim. And I want to suggest that Andy Stanley has gone from walking on thin ice to, to, to attempt walking on water. And he, he's, in my view, in an attempt to make the gospel relevant to a new generation, I believe he is drastically mistaken. I think at best it's simplistic and notwithstanding his popularity and his brilliance, at worst, that's profoundly heterodox. And if you're not sure what that means, it's the opposite of orthodox. What that does, that view does, is it fails to see the Bible as a complete story. It's a complete narrative. The Bible is like a five-act play. Stanley doesn't like Act 1, Act 2, or Act 3, so he suggests that we cut that away from the story and simply start a new story in Act 4 with the coming of Jesus. Let me again quote, Jesus stepped into history to introduce something new, not a version of the old thing or to update an existing thing. But that creates a massive problem. Acts 4 only makes sense in the light of Act 1, 2, and 3. And the, the new that Jesus comes to bring us is not a rejection of the old, but rather its fulfillment and its climax. Some people talk about Jesus as somebody who came to found a new religion. A new religion. He had no such intentions. He came to fulfill and complete the story of Israel, not to start a new and unrelated story. And if you read the New Testament, huge portions of it will not make sense unless you've read Act 1, 2, and 3. Without the Old Testament, much of the New Testament will simply be incoherent. For example, you try negotiating these concepts, all of which are in the New Testament, without Old Testament context. What's the point of talking about Jesus as the second Adam if you're going to wipe away the first? Jesus is God's true and faithful Israelite. He's the seed of the woman come to crush Satan's head. He is the one who says he's greater than the temple, greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah. He's the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's Daniel's son of man. He is the Passover lamb, the paschal lamb of God. He's the manna from heaven. He's the life-giving water from the rock. He's Isaiah's suffering servant. He's the righteous branch of Zechariah. He's the faithful husband of Hosea. And he's Malachi, son of righteousness, who rises with healing in his wings. Sometimes I wish I was a black preacher because that would preach. I'm not even going to try and do an impersonation. But you can imagine somebody getting hold of that. That's all in the Old Testament. If you wipe that away, the New Testament, when it speaks of those things, is simply incoherent. More important, Stanley's approach to the Old Testament, while lauded by many of his friends in evangelical circles, has a problem. It was not shared by Jesus. 
Jesus, in John chapter 5, verse 39, is talking to the Pharisees, and he said, you are searching the Scriptures. Listen, when Jesus is talking about the Scriptures, he's not talking about the New Testament. It hasn't been written. He's talking about the Old Testament, and he says, you are searching the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. Those are they which testify of me. He's saying, the Old Testament is about me. The message translation says, you have your head in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. As I say, this is Old Testament Jesus is talking about. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus walks on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. They're brokenhearted. They've just seen their hopes dash. Jesus has been crucified. They don't know he's been resurrected. And as he joins them, they don't recognize him. And he starts to speak to them and he says, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Note carefully, he doesn't tell them off for not believing in what he told them because he had constantly told them, and I'll be crucified by the Romans, by the Pharisees, in three days I'll rise from the dead. He'd told them numerous occasions. He doesn't tell them off for not believing his words. He tells them off for not believing the prophets and the scriptures. In that same chapter, a little bit after meeting those two disciples, he meets the other disciples in the upper room and he says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets and in the Psalms, in the Old Testament. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures and he told them this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. He's talking about the Old Testament. Richard B. Hayes in his brilliant book Reading the Scriptures Backwards says we learn to read the Old Testament by reading backwards from the Gospels and at the same time we learn to read the Gospels by reading forward from the Old Testament. Jesus didn't seem to share Stanley's approach to the Old Testament and neither did his early followers. Their symbolic world was shaped by Israel's scriptures. Their hopes for God's saving actions were fundamentally conditioned by the Old Testament stories of God's dealings with the people of Israel. They were heirs of that tradition and they shared a passionate concern that Jesus' teaching, his actions, his violent death and his ultimate vindication by resurrection constituted a continuation and a climax of the ancient story, not the end of that story and the beginning of a new one. It's the fulfillment of the story to this point and Jesus is the linchpin of the story going forward. The whole story is about him. When it comes to the writing of the New Testament scriptures, the first books that we have, the Gospels, do not constitute a radical break in the ancient story. They simply go straight on with the story. The first, of course, if you know your New Testament, is the Gospel of Matthew. Now, arguably, Matthew's central motif, his central feature is the idea of Jesus being the fulfillment of the story thus far. One commentator by the name of R.T. France said, Matthew stands out for his sustained and creative presentation of this theme of fulfillment in Jesus. Matthew's presentation of the story of Jesus is deeply soaked in and completely dependent on the Old Testament. One scholar says there are at least 54 direct quotations of Matthew from Matthew of the Old Testament and probably something like 260 plus echoes or allusions to Old Testament passages and stories. And that's conservative according to other scholars. 
Matthew is making clear to us that the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, in the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, all of God's purposes for his people, declared and illustrated through the Old Testament history of Israel, is coming to its destined fulfillment. You know what, I suspect when most of us start reading Matthew, we skip over the first 17 verses because it's all about a genealogy. It's, you know, he begat he, this guy, and this guy begat this guy, and there's 17 verses of begets, and we just jump over it straight to verse 18, which says, now the birth of Jesus Christ followed this manner. When you skip the first 17 verses, however, I think you missed something because they were put there Matthew was inspired by the Holy Spirit to put them here. And we aren't supposed to dive into the Christmas story until we plough our way through the begets. Because I think the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us that we won't understand the story that Matthew is about to tell us unless we see it in the light of and in the context of a much longer story that stretches back over many centuries. It's a long story, the history of Israel, but what Matthew does is he condenses it into a 17-verse into a sort of compression, a couple of key figures and some key events. From Abraham to David, he says, 14 generations. From David to the exile, 14 generations. From the exile to the Messiah, 14 generations. He's compressing the story of Israel down. But what he's doing is providing those 17 verses as a central historical interface that binds together the two great acts of God's salvation. The Old Testament tells the story that Jesus completes. By the way, Jesus was to do exactly what Matthew did a little later on when he told a parable about a vineyard and some tenants who wouldn't give the fruit of the vineyard to the owner. So the owner sends his son and they kill that son. That's the story of Israel compressed down into a short story, into a parable. So Matthew is doing what Jesus also did. Jesus does not represent a radical, decisive break in the story that's totally unrelated and completely um, separate from the, the old story. It's not the beginning of a new story. The gospel is the fulfillment of and not the negation of God's word to Israel. Jesus saw himself and the first gospel writers saw him as the climax and fulfillment of the story thus far. And so did the early church. When you read the chapters concerning the early church, the claim that the events of Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection, took place according to the scriptures stand at the heart of their message. Let me read some scriptures to you. Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 3, verse 18. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Peter is talking about the Old Testament story, the mouth of the prophets. In Acts chapter 8, Philip, is uh, he sees a, a, an Ethiopian eunuch in, a, in a, a, a chariot coming. He's on his way back from Jerusalem. He's pouring over the scriptures and Philip feels led by the Holy Spirit to go up and walk alongside. And it says in Acts chapter 8, Philip ran to him and heard him reading from the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place, where the, scriptures, uh, the place in the scriptures which he read was this. It's Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. He preached Jesus to him from the Old Testament. 
Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. The scriptures he's talking about is the Old Testament. The New Testament is in the process of being written. It isn't there yet. Acts 18 speaks of Apollos, who vigorously refuted the Jews, publicly showing from the Scriptures, from the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Christ. Paul in Acts 26, Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that Christ would suffer, that he would be first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul to the Corinthian people says, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. All of the according to the scriptures is Old Testament. They are linking the present part of the story with the former part of the story, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. We're now in Act 4, but you can't understand Act 4 unless you know Acts 1, 2, and 3. Paul begins his magnum opus, the book of Romans, with, this, with these words. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David. Stop for a moment. Unless you know what the seed of David is about, then that is incomprehensible to you. Why would you even say that unless there is some link to David? According to the flesh, declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Paul grounds this massive work in Israel's sacred scriptures. There are at least 51 direct quotes in Romans from the Old Testament. That doesn't even include allusions, echoes, and types. Romans is practically incomprehensible without the Old Testament. So Jesus didn't follow Stanley's advice his early disciples didn't follow Stanley's advice. The early church fathers of the second and third century didn't follow it either. They read, studied, and used the Old Testament, insisting that Christ was its main subject. Andy Stanley doesn't seem to be deterred by this and doubles down, insisting they were simply wrong to do so. He claims that attempts to find Christ in the Old Testament are simply instances of the Jewish scriptures being hijacked by Christians who are ignorant of their original context. I, I, do, I don't understand. Jesus says, they are about me. Now, I'm not suggesting that Stanley is a heretic. I think he's sadly mistaken. I'm not suggesting he's like Marcion, the second century heretic, who said the Old Testament God is completely different from the New Testament God. Get rid of that God, embrace this one. I'm not suggesting Stanley is a heretic. I don't think he is. However... I feel really strongly that his apologetic solution creates more problems than it solves. Now, I do understand the difficulty he's trying to address, but radical discontinuity that he suggests seems to me, at least, to run in the face of what Jesus, the Gospel writers, the Apostle Paul, the early church fathers said. And actually, modern biblical scholarship, I think, would disagree, and does, strongly, with, with uh, Andy Stanley. 
John Bright says, the great Lord Jesus came from outside and voluntarily and deliberately attached himself to the Old Testament and affirmed it to be the word of God and set himself at great cost to fulfill it. Richard B. Hayes says, fundamental to Paul's holy theological project is the claim that his gospel represents the authentic fulfillment of God's revelation to Israel. And Alec Moitcher says, Jesus chose to validate the Old Testament in retrospect and the New Testament in prospect and who is himself the grand theme of the storyline both in both Testaments and the focal point giving coherence to the total picture in all its complexities. Now you might be thinking, well, that, well that's sort of vaguely interesting, Don, but I don't actually like reading and I'm not liable to read the book that you've just spent 30 minutes telling us not to read because I just... Don't read. Well, I'd like to challenge that, but n maybe as we go on. Um, I'm, I'm not actually too worried whether or not you read the book. I, I find its contents disturbing, but what I think about this whole thing is, you can put Andy Stanley's book aside, but I could guarantee if we went through each one of you and talked about what you read, it would be mostly the New Testament and perhaps Psalms and Proverbs. In fact, if you dropped your Bible, it would probably open up at Psalm 23. <laughs> I, I, guarantee, I guarantee it doesn't open at Leviticus chapter 19. <laughs> I would bet my house on the fact that it doesn't open in Ezekiel chapter 13, or Jeremiah chapter 12, or Hosea chapter 9, or, or on and on I could go. What I'm suggesting is that in not reading your Bible, you are missing out on seeing Jesus. Because he said, it's all about me. Moses, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, he said, it's about me. You've got to see me in those incidences, in those types, in those pictures. They, they predict and prophesy me. Over the next few weeks, I, I would like to talk to you a little bit about the interrelatedness between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what I'd really love to do is get you excited about actually reading your Bibles and reading the Old Testament. Some of you say, well, Don, I don't, I don't read Bible, I listen to podcasts. Well, I'm sorry, um, podcasts might be good, but unless the podcast is the scriptures being read, it might be a reasonable supplement to your, to your study, but it cannot be a substitute. You need to be in your Bible. If you're going to be a resilient disciple, you need to be one who is in the scriptures. You know, we used to be known as the people of the book. I suspect that this generation are probably known as the people with the podcasts. It's not enough. It might be a good supplement to your diet, but it must not be a substitute. You need to be in the scriptures. If you're going to be resilient, you need to be animated by the scriptures because if you're not animated by the scriptures, you'll be bullied and washed away by the tsunami of the cultural currents round about you. You know, I've had people say to me, oh, Don, you know, when you talked about that from the Old Testament, that, that's, that's, that's just old-fashioned. Your approach to sexuality, Don, is old-fashioned. And, and, and I'm staggered by that. Because I want to say, well, you show me in the New Testament where your new fashion is found. Because it's not there. It's not in the scriptures. And I'm not interested in fashion. I'm interested in being animated by the word of God. And shaped by the word of God. We need to be the people of the book. Now, I know that 
some of the things that the Old Testament says aren't easy. But rather than simply dismiss it, you need to get your heads around some of the harder parts. And there is really good material that will help you get your head around those hard parts. Stanley's answer to the hard things is cut them off, cut them loose, disown them. I think there are better ways of dealing with the problem. Maybe we can look at that as we go on. I suggested this morning that the Old Testament is probably a little bit like, in places at least anyway, like having an eccentric uncle in your family. You know, you look at this uncle and his eccentricities are so significant that the temptation is to go, this guy's nuts, <laughs> and just and get rid of him. However, if you were to understand why he was a little eccentric, what had made those eccentricities part of his life, and if you could put them aside and actually get to the person, you might find an absolute gem. He might have profound wisdom. He might be just generous and kind and gracious and good. You might be unbelievably surprised by this person that you have simply dismissed because of his eccentricities. Don't get rid of the scripture because it seems a little bit eccentric to you. Find out why they are there. And what I'll, what I'll tell you is you'll, you'll find beyond those bits, gems. Gems of wisdom. Gems of revelation. And most of all, you'll find a person you'll find Jesus. He said, it's all about me. I'm in those passages. I am there if, you, if, you, if you've got an eye to see me. A lot of people just say, ah, oh, the Old Testament's full of laws. We're not under law, we're under grace. Jesus did not approach the scriptures like that. Paul didn't either. Paul said of the law, it is holy, it is righteous, it is good. Who do you know that is holy and righteous and good? And I want to suggest to you that the law is a reflection of the character of God. And you have to get through the eccentricities. It's written to an ancient people, and some of the ancient advice doesn't apply to us, and it's kind of a, a little weird, you know. Build, build ramparts round the top of your house so that no one will fall off and injure themselves. You think, why are you on the house roof in the first place? Well, they lived differently than we do. In the Middle East, that was often the coolest place. And what that had to do with was not that we should build you know, ramparts around our house, but that we should be concerned about the safety of the people that are on our property. There's a principle there. Because God is holy, righteous, good, and kind, and he cares for people. And he wants us to be careful for people too. So don't go building a rampart around your house, but you might want to put a fence around your swimming pool. You, you might see principles of goodness, kindness, and graciousness in the law if you look beyond the eccentricities. And that's what I'm suggesting you do. You say, well, Don, I, I, you know, I've got a King James Bible. I get two verses into Leviticus, and I'm confused about the blood, the guts, and the animals. Well, don't read the King James. Okay, Get the message translation. Well, it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. But it's, it's quite brilliant. Read the explanatory page before each book and it will set the context for you and, and you might find just some gems. There'll still be some parts you don't understand. There'll still be loads of genealogies. You think, why is that in there? You ask almost any other culture and they'll tell you why it's in there. We Westerners don't get it. But, but find a modern version and, and start. 
There's a couple of books I'll suggest to you. We'll put it on our social media play, uh, spots, but um, some books, uh, the, the Drama of Scripture. Can't remember the author, Craig Bartholomew and somebody else. Um, the Insect and the Buffalo, okay, by Roshan Alpress and Andrew Shammy, two Kiwis. And another one that I'd recommend is Andrew Ollerton's book, The Bible, um, The Story That Makes Sense of Life, I think it's called. And it's a really good book and really worth reading to give you that whole picture of Act 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Okay. So over the next few weeks, I want to encourage you, start. Just find somewhere. Don't, don't go to Leviticus, but, you know, find somewhere else. Start reading the Old Testament, okay? Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.